Hi friends, Pastor Brandon here. Just wanted to give you guys a preview of what's coming up. Because I realize I don't always get to say everything or go as deep as some of you would like me to go in a message. So this is your chance. What do I mean by preview? Well, hopefully you are choosing to read the passages that we're going to be teaching on Sunday. You're reading them ahead. Um, and as you know, uh, we're coming up on the Gospels. We're going to take one Gospel a week leading up to Easter. And then there'll be Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And then we'll get back to our regular chapter-by-chapter chapter teaching through the Pentateuch in Numbers. Uh, but so this Sunday coming up, we have Matthew. And so what we're going to do in each of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is ask, how does this Gospel invite us to follow Jesus? And in Matthew, what I'm going to be pulling out of this is that he is inviting us to mountain climb with Jesus. Yes, in Matthew, we are mountain climbing with Jesus. So let's start with the basic here. Matthew has this emphasis on Jesus as a teacher. First, Jesus is portrayed at the beginning of this gospel as a Moses, a new Moses. And not just someone like Moses, but a Moses 2.0, new and improved. One of the ways he does this is he uses the beginning chapters of his gospel in such a way as to frame Jesus to look like Moses. Let me show you what I mean. First of all, in chapter 2, we have this king named Herod who hears about Jesus' birth and feels threatened by this so-called king of the Jews. So what does Herod do? He does what Pharaoh did in Egypt. He seeks to kill all the baby boys. Now, like Moses, who narrowly escaped by being put in a basket and floated down the Nile River, Jesus narrowly escapes when an angel tells Joseph in a dream that he's got to go. Then they take Jesus to, of all places, Egypt for shelter. And then, like Moses, coming out of Egypt and into the wilderness, Mary and Joseph take Jesus out of Egypt when Herod dies and travel back to Israel, the same path Moses was leading the Israelites on. When Jesus grows up, we see that his cousin John the Baptist is baptizing Jews in the wilderness at the Jordan River and then they return to their home in Israel, the Promised Land, which is the same path that Israel took when they entered the Promised Land. They came to the Jordan River, they passed through the Jordan River, and then they began their conquest of Canaan. Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and now this is where we see he's better than Moses, because Jesus gets to cross the Jordan River. Moses did not get to do that. And then in chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days. 
Yeah, right? Because Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And so here's Jesus doing a miniature version of what Israel did, yet without failure. Israel is tested in the wilderness and they fail. They want bread and they complain, so God gives them manna. Well, Jesus says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. They want water, but they don't have it. So they complain and question, is God with us or not? Then God delivers water through the rock. Yet Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God. And then the devil tempts him the third time, worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Israel in the wilderness fails when they worship a golden calf. And so in the points where Israel fails, we see Jesus succeed. And then when this is all done and he comes out of the wilderness, in Matthew 5, we see in verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And then comes his most famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew calls this hill he climbs on a mountain. Why? Because he is intentionally trying to show that Jesus is Moses 2.0. Moses climbed Mount Sinai and there gave the law of God to Israel. Jesus climbs this mountain and there gives God's vision of love and mercy and his new law to his disciples. In addition to this, Matthew basically follows the Gospel of Mark, yet inserts five sermons into Mark's outline. So what I mean is, Mark probably wrote first, Matthew after Mark. And it would seem that Matthew was very well very aware of Mark's gospel because he basically follows the same outline, yet he adds his own unique material, which is only natural since Matthew was one of the 12 followers. And more than that, Matthew, we know, is a tax collector, which means he knows how to do bookkeeping, or in other words, he knows how to write, he knows how to take notes. So when he hears Jesus teaching, Matthew may very well have been the one who's able to keep a condensed version of what Jesus told the disciples. Because in the Jewish culture, it was common for the disciples of a rabbi to go and discuss later what the rabbi had said. Matthew may very well have been the bookkeeper for this. And so it's only natural that in his gospel, Matthew's able to take Mark's outline, why reinvent the wheel, just use that, and then insert within it five of Jesus's sermons, which he would have had great note-keeping on. Now, the number five is significant because, well, not only do the sermons show Jesus as a teacher, but five is in imitation of Moses's five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so here in Matthew, we have the Christian Pentateuch from the lips of Jesus. So real quick, this is where they are. The first sermon is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks a lot about the Christian character. 
The second sermon is in Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus tells his disciples to go out and share about the kingdom, and he gives them some instruction on how to do that. The third sermon is in Matthew chapter 13, which is really a collection of a lot of short stories known as parables, where Jesus talks about the kingdom he is to be a king over. The fourth sermon is in Matthew chapter 18, where he first talks about how to deal with people you disagree with or who offend you, First, you talk to them privately. If they don't listen, you bring in someone else as a witness. If they don't listen still, you take them to the entire congregation. If they still don't listen or repent, then you cast them out and treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, which does not mean you look at them as scum, but it means you love them and reach out to them as if the lost. Then after that, Peter asks, how many times must I forgive? And Peter thinks he's really generous and thinking, like, shall I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says, no. Seven times seventy. And then he launches into this parable about the unforgiving servant who had a huge debt and was forgiven of that debt and then comes to another slave who owes him so little and yet will not budge in forgiveness toward that slave. And Jesus says, this is ridiculous. You can't possibly do that to other people if you realize how much you have been forgiven. And then the fifth and final sermon comes in chapters 23 to 25. Chapter 23, Jesus rails against the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites. It's the infamous woes, classic fire and brimstone message, in which he goes as far as saying that their father is the devil. They're a brood of vipers. Who's the snake in Genesis? Exactly, they're offspring of the devil. It does not get much worse than that. And then almost as if Jesus is still seething from such an intense sermon, um, one of the disciples says, hey, look at the beautiful buildings of the temple. You know, when you're in that tense moment with someone and it gets very awkward and you just have to change the subject, talk about the weather or something. Yeah, well, that just launched Jesus into part two of this sermon in which he starts telling his disciples how the temple is not going to last. Every stone will be taken down. And then he gives them some advice for that moment. And there's even some moments where it seems like he's talking about the end times as well. That is known as the Olivet Discourse, where he talks to them about this on the Mount of Olives, which is right next to Jerusalem overlooking the city. Those are the five sermons So we see that Matthew portrays Jesus as a teacher. Now, the mountain climbing part. Matthew seems to like mountains. Yes, you know, Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain. Uh, Jerusalem is on a mountain. Jesus spends a lot of time and gives that last sermon um, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, At the end of the gospel, when he gives them the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. Um, That is on a mountain. He tells his disciples to meet him in Galilee, and there on the mountain they see him right before he sends to the Father. He tells them to go into all the nations. And then in the middle of the book, in the midst of all these significant mountains, We see the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus in his glory is revealed to Peter, James, and John. And with him are two other mountain climbers, Moses and Elijah. We talked about Moses and Mount Sinai. Elijah climbed Mount Carmel, 
where he took on the prophets of Baal and defeated them in that contest. Jesus and the other mountain climbers, bringing along with them his disciples, you and I, to be mountain climbers with him. And so in Matthew, the mountain we are to climb seems to be character. I say this because Matthew has a lot to say about our character. Each gospel has its own thing to say, and we'll get to those when they come up. But Matthew has his emphasis on character because the, the, his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, has a lot to say about our character. And he says things like in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as he's closing all of this up, he starts giving them some uh, practical steps. Like, do now that you've heard this, do this. Like, like, don't just say, oh, I agree with it, but go do it. Let it become part of who you are, forming your character. So he says in chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus is saying, don't just call me your Lord, but do what I've been teaching you. He then goes on to what I guess you could call a parable in 724. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be the opposite. Like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the rains blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You do what I tell you to do. You follow my teachings. It forms character. Character which is able to persevere, which is able to endure all the trials, all the temptations, everything that comes into our lives. You will not fall because you have character. And character is like mountain climbing because you're not born with character. Nor are we born capable of reaching the summit in an instant. It takes endurance and it takes strength. It takes the practice of climbing a mountain to be able to get to the top. You don't always have the strength and the endurance for it right away. It's something you acclimate to. Uh, we know, living here in mountains ourselves, that not everyone can handle the thin air up here. They come up and they get winded climbing one set of stairs. Uh, it takes time to adjust to the thin air. And then, of course, we go down to the flatter ground and realize there's so much air there, we have more energy. (laughs) It takes acclimating to mountain climbing and to mountain life. It's the same with character. We have to start with these little practices, and it feels unnatural at first. But the more we do them, the stronger our character develops. 
And then we become mountains. And there's no mountain we cannot climb. We get higher and higher up the mountain the more and more we allow the teachings of Jesus to build character into us. So that maybe it's quite possible to do what Jesus says in the middle of the Sermon of, on the Mount in chapter 5 verse 20, uh, 5 verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we sometimes freak out about that. I do not think Jesus is saying you must be morally perfect. He knows we're human. He knows we fail. But he is asking us to move toward that direction. Perfect can also refer to the end for which you are made. You're reaching your potential. And forming character gives us the kind of substance that God has made us to have. Speaking of character and substance, C.S. Lewis has this really interesting book called The Great Divorce. It's short. You can read it even in a day. Uh, You should probably read it slower, though, to let it sink in. I've read it a few times, and I would love to finish reading it before I teach this message. I don't think I'll be able to, but it's so interesting because it's a book which, in my view of it, says essentially character gives you substance. So in this book, a group of people travel from hell on a bus into heaven. People from hell get to tour heaven. And um, it's implied that they get to stay there if they want, if they can stand it. But what we end up learning is that none of the citizens of hell can tolerate heaven. For when they get out of the bus, immediately, the grass hurts their feet. It's like knives, leaves, and apples, and everything is too weighty. It's too big. They're they're afraid of being crushed. They're like little ghosts, little wisps of life in this place that is too real for them. Because in a place of eternity, everything takes on much more weight, much more substance, much more reality. And so it's because these people in their lives never form substance through character that they find heaven far too real to their liking. And they do nothing but complain. (laughs) I'll go back to Lewis's view on character in a minute. But it just, uh, that verse, Jesus saying, be perfect. He's calling us to practice his teaching and finding the purpose for which we were made through it starting to develop substance. Then we can be like that city on a hill Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put light, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So character leads to action. It leads to works. Our works flow out from our character. You'll notice what Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 15. He likens it to trees. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Here, the fruit is the work. And that work is being produced by the type of tree that it is, which is your character. Your works are byproducts of your character. And your character is the choice to practice putting Jesus' words and teaching into action. So there he is climbing a mountain. Will you climb with him? We may find it hard, yes. Our feet may hurt. We may find the terrain rugged and not to our liking. It may not be level enough. The air may be too thin. We may not have enough food. We may not have a nice plush chair to sit in at the end of the day. We may not like mountain climbing. But not all character appeals to us. Naturally. Sometimes we have to push ourselves to it. One step at a time. You also notice in Matthew 12, verse uh, 33, uh, that Jesus, again, likens the whole idea that character leads to action. Uh, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit bad, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So some of the uh, character traits that Jesus is looking for are emphasized in Matthew. Uh, one of them, just to touch on two, one is mercy. And we see this one come up twice. Once in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the context in which he says that is interesting. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus eating with Matthew. And Jesus is at the table with Matthew. And there's other tax collectors and sinners eating with Jesus and the disciples. And then we see the Pharisees come in and say, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Matthew 9, 12, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Now he cites Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Pharisees, your law is falling short because Moses 2.0 is calling you to interpret everything through the lens of mercy. This happens again in Matthew, which makes it unique, because it only happens once in Mark. Uh, in Matthew 12, verse 7, we see him citing this once again. This time, it's when the disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. They pluck some heads of wheat, and they eat the wheat, and the Pharisees say, Ha ha! You're working on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And then Jesus responds with this. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So look, David broke the law. 
Verse 5, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, there's a lot that could be said there, but... The point there is how Jesus is once again reinterpreting some common basic laws through the lens of mercy. So the followers of Jesus must learn to start putting rules aside if they interfere with the harder practice of mercy. The one law greater than all the law is mercy. As Jesus himself will say later on, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, the only heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. Mercy is at the heart of this law. And then, of course, there is forgiveness. As we kind of covered in chapter 18, uh, the fourth of the five sermons, Jesus deals with forgiveness. But I want to point out how in the Sermon on the Mount, it's introduced in what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Jesus says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So we want God to forgive us as we are forgiving others. Then at the end of the prayer in verse 14, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. And then in chapter 18, we have that scene where Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Peter thinks he's being very generous, but Jesus says, I say to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. Then he tells this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, what, what does that mean? Um, you may automatically just think in terms of dollars. Oh, he owes him $10,000. Yeah, a lot of money for most of us. But 10,000 talents is exponentially more than $10,000. This guy is in deep trouble with his king. Let me read to you a quote from a scholar about this amount he says, the king in the parable forgives the slave a debt of 10,000 talents, a staggering amount that is something on the order of the national debt. Herod's total annual income amounted to only 900 talents, and the taxes imposed on Gal Galilee and Perea together only 200 Talents. Are you, are you kidding me? This, this is, in other words, trillions of dollars. This is ridiculous. And that's the point. That's, that's the reason this is a parable. 
is because, yeah, this may not actually be able to happen in real life, but it's an exaggerated, absurd situation to demonstrate the absolute depth and generosity of God's forgiveness. Like, we have to be shocked into an absurd story to catch how much forgiveness matters. But we get ahead of ourselves. So, so far we only know that this guy owes this absurd debt. 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So he's basically going to become a slave to pay it up, which obviously he could never do. He could never repay this, even if he got 1,500 jobs. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's it. He asked for pity and the debt is forgiven. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Does this sound familiar? And pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There it is again. That word mercy. And you also perhaps have noticed that it's talking about the forgiveness of debts, which is the very phrasing that the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible, uses in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This parable is putting in vibrant colors the two lines of that prayer. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so I don't know necessarily that the point of Jesus saying, if you don't forgive others, God will not forgive you. Uh, this guy didn't forgive him, so he was put in jail. Um, I don't know that the point is that you go to hell if you can't forgive but it is certainly true that you will experience hell on earth if you can't forgive. Studies are showing that unforgiveness is actually physically destructive to our bodies. It opens us up to illnesses, it breaks us down, we can't sleep, it's a whole vicious cycle. And we actually suffer quality of life when we cannot forgive Substance requires forgiveness. Character is formed when we forgive, when we show mercy. So I want to close this reading two 
quotes from C.S. Lewis in his work, Mere Christianity. He has this section in that book all about Christian morals and character, some of which he tackles individual ones head on. It's, it's an interesting read, no doubt, especially when paired with his book, The Great Divorce. But I wanted to read these quotes to you um, to kind of give us a sense of what is going on. Uh, don't forget, please don't miss the point. We are not being called to gain character in order to gain heaven. No, heaven's not at the top of the mountain and only those that can climb it will make it. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. That that one servant who owed some trillion amount in debt, he didn't have to climb a mountain to receive forgiveness. That was pure grace. But character is important for this. And I think C.S. Lewis brings some brilliant insights. So this is at the end of his chapter, The Cardinal Virtues. And he says this. The point is not that God will refuse you admission to his eternal world if you have not got certain qualities of character. The point is that if people have not got at least the beginnings of those qualities inside them, then no possible external conditions could make a heaven for them. That is, could make them happy with the deep, strong, unshakable kind of happiness God intends for us. So Lewis is saying, not that character gets you into heaven, but that if you at least don't have the beginnings of character going on, if you've not at least started to try to climb that mountain with Jesus, then no outward circumstances could possibly ever make you happy. Because joy and heaven begins within us. When we conform to the teachings of Jesus, that makes us capable of seeing heaven and enjoying heaven. So like in the great divorce, when these people from hell come to heaven, they do nothing but complain because the perfect environment is actually too good for them. They can't even, they can't even endure it. It's painful to them because they had nothing within going on. Following Jesus is about forming us into the kind of creatures that want heaven because we began to experience it here now. Now, in addition to this, one more quote, which to me is incredibly interesting. I've never considered character in this light, and I hope it blows your mind too. Let me just read it, and then we'll throw some commentary. So this one is toward the end of his chapter, The Three Parts of Morality. And he says, Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only 70 years but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true... Hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. Whoa. Okay. What is Lewis saying there? He is saying there are all kinds of funny little moral laws or rules Christians have or, or values, virtues, character qualities that some of the world may say, what is, what's the big deal with that? 
And even you probably think sometimes, who cares? Like, it was just a little white lie. No big deal. Okay, true. If we only live under a 100 years, then maybe the gradual uh, decrease of our character or uh, the vices we hold on to, maybe they're not going to be a very big deal. You know, maybe you have a problem uh, cursing or something. Like, maybe in 70 years, that's not going to be a big deal. But he asks you to consider, stretch out that trajectory beyond 70 years. Let that arrow keep going forever. What will you become in a thousand years, in a million years, in a million million years? Yeah, right? That little seed of anger, that little grudge of unforgiveness... That tendency to ignore people who need your help? You stretch that out long enough, you will become a monster. That is what makes hell hell. Not that you have just have people who rejected Jesus there, but that you have people who refuse to allow the teachings of Jesus to have any shape on their lives. So they've done what they want, and you... You you compound that by eternity, and that is the sort of critter that inhabits hell. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, you're not listening. <laughs> you you are not alive. And so what we see is that Jesus' invitation to climb the mountain with him is not about saving your soul, although That is definitely a part of it, but it's about shaping your soul. Brothers and sisters, friends, we have an amazing gift to live with God forever. And if we think about that hard enough, it should put us into this motivation to say, I want to climb that mountain. I want to be fit. I want to live in the highest parts of heaven. I want for eternity a certain kind of character that will continue to go in a good direction. Yes, brothers and sisters, today we have the opportunity with every decision we face to shape our soul toward heaven. So may you be challenged, may you find it worth following Jesus up the mountain. And you know what will happen when we do? The transfiguration will happen. You will change. The world will change. Happy hiking.